So may these words of mine now be in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For many years, Larissa and I have been going on walking holidays. It's good for us, and you meet a great cross-section of people. One of the most interesting people I've met was a woman who was a violinist in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and she had been in that orchestra when Simon Rattle was the conductor. So I was fascinated by this and had long conversations with her, and in the end I asked the inevitable idiot question. I said to her, what is the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? I half expected the answer and I got it. She smiled and said, second fiddle. Second fiddle is the same in life, isn't it? Who wants to be second fiddle in any situation? And yet that's how we tend to regard John the Baptist in relation to Jesus. John is second fiddle. He stands in Jesus' shadow. But actually, you know, when John the Baptist burst on the scene, he was anything but second fiddle. He was a sensation. And to understand why, well, just think of English history for a second. I want to take you back 400 years. So we're back past the First World War, we're back past the long reign of Victoria, back past Waterloo and Trafalgar, back past the Four Georges, back past the Glorious Revolution, back past the English Civil War, 400 years takes you almost to James I and the Gunpowder Plot. Now, in anybody's language, 400 years is a long time. And 400 years or more was how long it had been since the people of Israel had heard the authentic word of God speaking out to them through a prophet. They had been in exile in Babylon, they had returned. They had rebuilt the temple, and then, well then nothing, silence. Invading armies tramped through their land. Greek and Egyptian and Syrian and now finally Roman, but the voice of God was silent. It seemed that the heavens were sealed, tight shut. And then God spoke. And when he spoke, he spoke through John the Baptist. John was the sensation of his day. People flocked to him from all over, and John preached to them. He urged them to live differently, to change their ways, for God's long-promised kingdom was coming. It was, if you like, just over the horizon, and they needed to change. Whoever they were, whether it was tax collector, soldier, religious leader, they needed to be baptised as a token of preparation for the kingdom that was shortly to come. 
But John knew that he was not the one who would bring in that kingdom. The kingdom would come with the coming one. The coming one who would burn up the chaff, who would gather the wheat into the barns, who would stand over against the people in fierce judgment. But when the coming one came, John was shocked. In fact, John was scandalized at what the coming one asked him to do. Think about it for a moment. What was John's message? John's message was repent, live differently. You need to change your ways for the kingdom is coming. And Jesus comes to him and Jesus asks what? Jesus asks to be baptised. This made no sense to John. For when you think about it, the one person who did not need to live differently wants to undergo the right of those who are changing. The one person who was bringing in the kingdom asked to undergo the right that prepares for the kingdom. And the one who is greater, Jesus, asked to receive baptism at the hands of the one who is less, John. Now, if you read Luke's Gospel, you won't really see any problem. As the people were being baptised, Luke tells us, Jesus was also baptised as though they were not a problem. But of course, if you think about it, there is. Why did Jesus need to be baptised? The clue to it is in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew records a conversation between Jesus and John. John is trying to deter Jesus. You do not need to be baptised by me. I need to be baptised by you. And Jesus says to John, let it be for the moment. It is fitting to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, how does that help? Well, you see, Matthew uses to fulfill very often. And what he means is to complete God's promises. So what Jesus is saying to John, by doing this, We will bring to completion all God's promises in the Old Testament. This is necessary. And as to fulfill all righteousness, well, righteousness is to be set right, to be brought into a new relationship with God. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I am going to be baptised, and by doing so, I will identify with the people. I will stand not against them, but alongside them. And I will show how it will be possible for people to be in a right relationship with God. When we last saw Jesus in Luke's Gospel, a young man of 12, he was in the temple in Jerusalem, asking and answering questions of the Jewish teachers. But now, 15, maybe 20 years have passed, 
and Jesus comes to the Jordan. What has he been doing in these intervening years? What has he been doing during these years of silence? Well, almost certainly he's been following the family business. He's been the carpenter of Nazareth. But I am sure he's been doing something else as well. He has been pondering and meditating on the Jewish scriptures. And he has been praying to God, asking for God to make clear what his mission is and how he will carry it out. And I think that Jesus came to a conclusion, that Jesus knew what that mission was to be, that the time was right, and it was then he went to the Jordan. But it's one thing to think you know what God wants you to do. Because you think you know what God wants to do doesn't necessarily mean that you are right. So Jesus comes to Jordan, he gets baptised like the tax collector, like the soldier, like the Pharisee and the Sadducee. But is he really doing what God wants him to do? There comes a voice from heaven. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. And that for Jesus must have been the clincher. For you see, this heavenly voice weaves together crucial passages from the Jewish scriptures, passages that Jesus must have known and prayed over. These two passages form a job description, if you like, a job description of what God wanted Jesus to do. Let's quickly unpack it. You are my son. This comes from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2, many scholars believe, was used during the coronation ceremony of Jewish kings. You are my son, this day I have become your father. Verse 7 of Psalm 2. And what Jesus will have got from that, the heavenly voice says, you are my son. In other words, you are to be a king. But what sort of king is Jesus to be? Well, the second part of the message from heaven, with whom I am well pleased. This refers to one of the servant songs in 2nd Isaiah. This mysterious servant of whom Isaiah speaks. The one who would open the eyes of the blind. The one who would be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And then finally, in the last of the servant songs, Isaiah 53, you get these wonderful words. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, that's the servant, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the servant, in the end, was to take the place of the people. He was to die in their place. 
He was to be the substitute for them. So that's the job description. That's what the voice says Jesus is to be. Jesus is to be the king who serves his people like the servant of the Lord. Jesus is to be the king who reigns from the cross. Jesus is to be the one who will die in place of people to bring them into right relationship with God. Not just the Jewish people. He will be the light to lighten the Gentiles. He will do this for the whole world. That's the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is baptized not because he had sins of his own which needed to be dealt with. Jesus was baptized to stand alongside, to be part of God's people, and in the end, to take place so that they could be brought into a new and wonderful living relationship with God. You see, Jesus came down to raise us up. Jesus took our place so that we could take his place. Jesus gave his life so that we might gain our lives. Jesus died so that we could be, every one of us, in a new and living relationship with the one Jesus called Father. John the Baptist struggled to understand all this, but let's make sure that we understand it. For there is nowhere else, I believe, in the whole of Scripture that shows so clearly that the one who created the whole universe cares, cares deeply, passionately about ordinary people, about people like you, about people like me. In Jesus he says, here am I with you. Here am I for you. And yes, because it is necessary, I will even stand in place of you. It's hard to believe, but it's wonderfully true. The grace of God is that wide. God wants to include each and every one of us in his family. And in the baptism of his son, he shows how this will be done. The one who is born humbly in a stable, humbly steps into the Jordan to identify with us. He will humbly ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And finally, he will humbly die on a cross. That's the God we worship. The God who stands not against us, but with us. The one who comes not to judge us, but to save us. Our God is a wonderful God. And we are called to worship him.
Let's just be quiet a second. Father, in this new year, help us to see more clearly what you are really like. Help us to see your Son in all his wonder. And as we do so, Lord, may our praise come back to you in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name.